Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. This is a podcast of conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Tim Blake. Tim's the Managing Director of Semantic Consulting, who are focused on leading digital change in healthcare. Tim helps organisations with digital health strategy and is passionate about enabling engaged patients, activating carers, the use of mobile solutions in health, consumer health technology, precision medicine, consumer genomics, pharmacogenomics, and many other components of digital health that are disrupting healthcare in positive and exciting ways today. Tim's been on the podcast once before as well, way back in episode two, in a different world where telehealth was a mere pipe dream and we were allowed to shake hands and buy more than two packets of pasta at a time. A lot to change in digital health and a lot stayed the same. And we're going to go into every nook and cranny of it over the next half an hour or so. Hey, Tim, how are you going? Hey, Pete, I'm to be with you. It's the big episode 50 today. Big, big 5 yeah, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I figure it was only fitting to, to bring you on given that you're way back in episode two. And I, I think back then I had all of three listeners if you count you me and my mum and um, that's <laughs> and you've given me some good introductions to some really important people who've had been on the show as well so thank you yeah no awesome Pete. i've really enjoyed listening oh good thank you checks in the mail all righty what's changed since last episode so that's that was back in um uh, over a year ago i think so let's let's set the scene specifically i want to talk to you today more about the mobile health apps side of things for a few different reasons of a lot of different areas in digital health but specifically when it comes to using mobile apps in healthcare like firstly kind of set the scene how are mobile apps being used in healthcare today that might be a good starting point yeah look it's a really interesting area i think it's massively taken off in the last five ten years i think huh. Perhaps some people originally had this idea that Apple's app store was was paved with some kind of gold and it's led to a a bit of a gold rush that now sees probably 300,000 plus apps for healthcare in the um, Apple app store and the Google Play store. So phenomenal numbers of, of people developing apps for healthcare. In one sense, that's really exciting. It's wonderful to see a lot of innovation and I guess you need a certain amount of innovation for a certain percentage of it to be quite good. But the challenge when you get that many things is some of them are unhelpful, some of them are downright dangerous, and only a small proportion are really, really good. So it's been interesting spending some time over the last few years looking at some of these mobile health apps and and really trying to draw some patterns out over what is helpful, what's not and begin to help clinicians navigate this space where there's just so many things. Mm. So so what is, what is helpful and what is not helpful when you talk about mobile health specifically? Where can they really kind of kick some goals and where is it just a, a big fat waste of time? Well, at first, I think it's important to say this is something that consumers are doing and there's a sense in which consumers have got out ahead of health professionals by having done this for a number of years now. And in some of the consulting work that I do, we had some GPs come to us and say, look, we're getting patients come into our practice and say, doctor, I'm using this app. What do you think? How can you help us determine what's good and what's bad? And, and initially, some of these doctors said to us, well, could you give us a list of certified mobile health apps? And we, we thought about that for a short period of time and said, well, not really. You know, it's not our job to certify actually as a small consulting company. And neither do you really want a list because this space changes on an almost daily basis. Mm. But we, we get the problem. And, and why don't we see if we can help? And maybe 
foolishly, I'm not sure, somewhat reluctantly entered into trying to build a, a web-based repository of information about mobile health apps. And as we did so, really started to notice some of the factors when it comes to what's good and what's bad. And you know, if I get back to your original question, which is how do you begin to separate that out? Mm. Um, the answer is it's really complicated because people have very different views. And I think part of the work that I've seen people try to do is trying to collapse a single app down to a single score out of five. And at some point that becomes a little bit unhelpful because there are different and validly different perspectives. And consumers sometimes value different things from health providers. And, and as we've worked with a range of health providers, we've noticed that no two health providers have exactly the same definition of what good is as well. And if I can give a sense of the, the spectrum, on the one hand, I've met GPs who have said to me, I will not use an app or recommend it to patients unless there are multiple positive RCTs. On the end of the other end of the same spectrum, I've had GPs say to me, well, I used this app a couple of times myself. I quite liked it, so I now recommend it to my patients. So there's a huge spectrum of views. And I guess somewhat reluctantly over the years, we've come to a conclusion that it's not necessarily our job to, to tell people what good is, but rather to provide a lot of high quality information about what does this app do? How do you classify that in a standardized way? How do you classify the features and functions that it has? Um, what evidence does this app have for its efficacy and the claims that it makes? And actually just present that in a, in a fairly factual way and let people make some of their own value judgments in a space where making value judgments is a little subjective at this stage. Sure. If I think about apps, I don't know all of the stats, but I've got to think that health apps are right up there in terms of the category with the most amount of apps in there outside of, I guess, games. And I'm not sure what else, but I've got two questions like on the digital health guide, how much of the, I guess, market do you reckon you have? And then second, how do you keep up with, with all of that information? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's quite a daunting, it, it's no less daunting than it was at the start. We've reviewed to date probably eight, 900 different things, the majority of which are apps, some of which are web-based resources, out of a total pool of the exact numbers anyone's guessed, but north of 300,000 things. And on the face of it, that sounds like not that many, but all the evidence we have shows that it is a very significant majority of what people in Australia are actually using. Mm. So. We think we've probably got 90 to 95% of what people are actually using covered in the things that we review. Obviously, you have to stay on top of that because that changes week by week. And there's always things coming out of the woodwork or things suddenly growing in popularity that, that we haven't covered. But I think it is actually practically possible to cover the majority. One of the ways we do that is by looking at the App Store charts of the top 200 each week or so. And they're relatively static. They do change over time, but they're not completely different from week to week you know the top 100 stays the top 100 for you know like the uh the music charts it, it, it evolves over time it doesn't change overnight so it is possible to practically keep up but yeah not with 100 percent no that's yeah. for sure yeah that's crazy I, I guess it's it's hard to just be like australian or, or new zealand specific it's a global market too so that, that that brings all new complexities i would imagine for for you guys in trying to yeah look because even even if you try to separate that out it's harder it's a harder problem than it sounds so google has a global 
app store where you can see everything but not necessarily download it in every region. Apple has has a store where you have to specifically mark it to be downloaded in different regions. Mm. But if you look at the content base we have, probably 50% of that content base is common across the UK, Canada, US and Australia. So 50% of the apps in the top 100 would probably be present in the top 100 of all of those countries. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that varies a little over time. But so there is significant commonality and a number of the most popular apps for health out there actually do come from the US and, the, and Canada and the UK. So there's probably a little bit more commonality than you might expect, but we've really focused our efforts at this stage on Australia and, and the things that are used here. So when I, when I think of, of what's being used here in Australia... And specifically, say, regulating this kind of stuff. What's changed in the the industry when it comes to regulations for, say, software as a medical device? Yeah, look, this is an area that that kind of worries me. It keeps me up at night because my personal view, having having dealt quite significantly in this space, is that there isn't enough regulation. It's not uncommon that in the work that we do reviewing apps, we will come across things that just appear to be flat out dangerous. And there's more than one occasion on which we've notified Apple, um, for example, and had things removed from the App Store because we didn't believe that they were safe and and that was agreed to and things were removed. That's not something that our Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA, is doing at the moment. And it's interesting because it depends how you classify medical device. And there are a number of things out there that would have on them a caveat that says, and you've probably seen this, you know, this is not intended to be a medical device. This is not intended to influence your treatment or diagnosis. You must see a doctor. Mm. But it turns out that just because it says that doesn't mean people aren't using it in that way. So if I give you an example, we... I found an app the other day that purports to read your blood pressure via the um, camera on a smartphone. Now, in academia, it's possible with some emerging technologies that we might in the future be able to use that as a technique, but it's not established. It's not safe right now. So I thought I'd use it as somebody who's a mild hypertensive and give it a bit of a try. And it said I had low blood pressure. Now, I don't have low blood pressure. I have slightly higher blood pressure. And if I had used that device and gone oh look my blood pressure is fine i don't need to go to the doctor it might have delayed treatment by six nine twelve months i might never have gone to the doctor now of course this device which really is functioning as a device has caveats saying they don't rely on this but how many people are it's complicated and i think i guess what i'm saying is there are things that probably need to be regulated that are not. And I think that our regulator has a lack of resource and expertise in this area, and they quite possibly would pursue some of these things if they had more capability to do so. Yeah, but it worries me. And I guess the other element of this that that's changed is that in the past... So our Australian regulator regulates things that are created in Australia. And in the past where that was a medical device, you had to physically send for overseas or you had to, you know, physically write off to get some medications from another country. You understood that geographic barrier. Today, when you just click install next to an app and it downloads, you don't know what country that app was created in and whether it sits under the Australian regulatory regime or not. So actually there's this real complexity around whether consumers are even in theory protected that I think really needs some looking at on the part of government. But when you have 300,000 things out there, the cat is very much out of the bag and and how you do that becomes really, really complicated. Mm, Totally. I don't even know where you'd start with that. But when we look at, say, people relying on digital 
resources more now is probably a, a time where everyone is relying on digital more than ever. So like during uh, COVID-19, social isolation and, and everything that comes along with that, are you guys doing anything that's related with the digital health guide? Yeah, look, we have this concept of bundles. So the idea being that you can create for a given condition or a group of things that can be prescribed and you know, recommended in one action. So we have for example, created a bundle of mental health resources to help people who might be struggling with the mental health side of social isolation. But I think not just the the act of doing that in a given situation, but I, I think our real desire has been to make the act of prescribing apps, if you want to do that with air quotes, prescribing apps as something that's clinically safe because there's a lot of informality in this space. If, if you look at the RECGP's most recent technology surveys, they say that somewhere between 30 and 60% of GPs are making digital recommendations. Mm. And yet, from our experience of having met face-to-face with several hundred of those GPs, a lot of them are doing that verbally or with a post-it note or in an email. And it's, I guess, somewhat ironic that in a digital world, digital recommendations are being made non-digitally often based on personal preference and not evidence and our desire is to see that elevated to see practice in that space elevated where people are recommending things that um, have evidence and have proof of efficacy and are keeping track of what they're recommending and prescribing so keeping an audit trail of who they prescribe to and when and maybe even why because that's what we do for medications because that's what's clinically safe and then you can apply a clinical decision support to that with a medication and say no hang on a minute you can't give this drug to this patient because patients are already taking something and that might cause harm yeah and yet we're not currently able to do that with digital health. So I guess the way we've begun to see the digital health guide is actually as a digital health formulary, similar to a medications formulary that allows an organisation, a healthcare organisation with prescribers, to put some rules around that prescribing. And in some instances to stop it, in other instances you might have to seek approval to make those prescriptions. Um, In other instances just to warn people that are you sure you want to do this because you're prescribing something that our organisation doesn't support. So I guess that's the way we're starting to view the work we're doing, really something quite significant in the clinical safety space. Mm. And I guess if I was picturing a formulary or a a list you would be normally prescribing, I, I would see that in a practice management system and then that would bring up your, your contradictions or, or allergies or anything like that. So you're picturing eventually that's the path that will go, being starting to build this stuff into practice management systems? Yeah, well, we're literally in the place where we have the ability for an organisation to whitelist a bunch of apps that they their organisation supports and then constrain prescribing based on that whitelist. Mm. Now, we don't have organisations that have yet gone down that path because I think we're really early in developing these clinical workflows And we're certainly not seeking to be restrictive in terms of what health providers do. But at the same time, we need to think about what's safe because there's all this medico-legal risk being run. If I'm a GP and I tell you use this app and I don't keep a record of what I told you to use or when I told you to use it or what it was for, and you come back to me and say, look, I've I've had some harm occur and I think it's your fault, there's a medico-legal liability that's been generated there and I have nothing to fall back on in terms of 
proof of what it was I told you to do. So we're really trying to step into that space before we see harm caused and have organizations mature their processes because we don't have to learn these lessons again. We just went through this over the last 20 years with medications. Let's Mm. not start from paper when it comes to (laughs) uh, prescribing apps. And believe me, this will become more of a thing. So in Germany recently, it's a slightly different system over there, and this happens through insurers, um, but there is government reimbursement now for certain mobile health apps that can prove their efficacy. So effectively like a PBS for apps. And we might be slow in getting there here, but one day we will see that here too. Yeah, okay. What about elsewhere in the world? How else are other parts of the world dealing with digital health and using those in the form of day-to-day healthcare for patients? Um, yeah, look, there's there's positive progress all over the all over the world. There's an organisation doing some um, similar things to us in the UK, and we're obviously very supportive of that. An organisation called Orca. Mm-hmm. The work that we have done with the Digital Health Guide is not flagrantly commercial. The aim really is very much to help the practice of digital health and and the way it's being practiced. So we we welcome progress anywhere. I haven't seen much in the US in this space, although I would expect to see more in the coming years because I think there's probably more advanced use of digital health in general across the US, although overall that doesn't mean the health system is better. But I I look, I'd say between um, the UK and Australia, we're probably leading the pack in terms of what we've seen in this space. Yeah, okay, cool, cool. I like that noble quest for bettering healthcare vibe you got going on, Tim. I could almost create like a fantastic five of Australian healthcare and put you and Graeme Grieve and a few others in there of people who are really trying to not, not be overly commercial in this space. That's not a question. It's just a comment of uh, how positive <laughs> well, looking, this work is. I, I recognize some people may, may disagree with that as well. But I think fundamentally, if I give you an example, if I look at something like, you know, alternative medicine and the way that I'm not suggesting for a moment that I'm a huge advocate of alternative medicine, I'm not. But if you look at, some of the things that have happened in that space, there's been this fracturing of the relationship between patients and doctors. And so patients will try and take some of their thoughts in this space to doctors who will go, look, frankly, I'm not interested in engaging. That stuff's all rubbish. Go and talk to someone else. And I personally had an experience where I took some genomic information to a GP who told me to go and see a naturopath because they weren't that interested, which I found really interesting, right? I I didn't want to see a naturopath. Hmm. I wanted to talk to my GP about the latest evidence around genomics, but they didn't want to engage. My worry by analogy has been that digital health might end up in the same space that if, you know, GPs are overwhelmed with all of this stuff about patients talking about apps and they're not well informed then they'll just go to patients look frankly i'm not interested do what you like i'm not interested go over there we built this platform to actually try and bridge that gap and to try and bring this knowledge base to gps so that when patients come in and go i'm using this what do you think they can actually try to answer that question and it might not be here is the answer it might be I've got some information, let's look together. Mm-hmm. But we're trying to be sort of that knowledge base that's the equivalent of MIMS in the medication space where, like you said, you can go and look up your contraindications and all your rare drugs and those kind of things. We're trying to be that same knowledge base, but for digital health. We're not there yet, but ultimately the philosophy behind this is closing the gap between patients and providers and, and stopping that fracture from occurring. Yeah, well, what, a, what a cool journey to go on. Hey, look, if I was thinking of a 
obviously patients don't need a prescription now to, to download an app. And I, I don't think that's the intention at all. And from what I get from you, it's part of that creating that communication channel between patient and doctor so they can speak openly about a, a digital health tool to help a patient when they're not in the clinic. But if I was just to think now off the top of your head, Tim, if are there any top things for someone who might be listening now, if they were going to be choosing an app to use, whether it's for health, fitness or well-being or whatever, I'm, I'm not sure what the kind of scope of your remit is, but um, what are some things to look out to say, hey, this might be a useful tool or this one might be a, a, a load of garbage? Yeah, look, it's hard to come up with a single thing, but I'll give you a couple that I think are helpful. I think one is to look at the claims that the app makes. So obviously, if you just have a physical activity app, I'm a runner and cyclist and I like Strava. Strava is a great app. It's got a very engaged community, helps you to compete with your friends. Strava doesn't make any wild claims about weight loss or anything like that, any medical outcomes. So there's a sense in which the, the risk of an app to a degree is relative to the claim that it's making so in that sense driver is safe because it's not claiming to you know, cause all this weight loss or those kind of things you can imagine too sort of hypothetically if you had a mindfulness app i say this to, to people sometimes you know, imagine you've got the same meditation and mindfulness app and you have it in the app store twice and the only difference between those two the code is the same everything is the same the only difference is one has a description in the app store that says this app cures ptsd yeah. And the second one says this is a meditation and mindfulness app. I would argue that despite having the same code, same everything, one of those apps is at that point dangerous because it's making maybe unsubstantiatable claim. So, so a key part of assessing that risk is what does this app claim that it's doing? And then within the bounds of that claim, to what extent has it been appropriately created by medical professionals? So if it's making medical claims, then it needs to back that up. So just lastly, Tim, what's what's on the horizon for the Digital Health Guide? What are you guys working on and what do you hope to, to release in the future? Yeah, well, look, the shameless plug is that we just put up a payment gateway that means anyone listening to this can go and uh, check it out and um, tap up yourself or myself for a discount code, but uh, become a subscriber and user of it. Mm. So that's something that we've been working hard on. I think, though, more seriously, we're, this year we're looking to partnerships and to work with a number of peak bodies in different areas of healthcare to seek their endorsement for apps and other solutions that they really like. So we're doing some work with some diabetes organisations, for example, and we'll seek to get their endorsement for something and to help them help um, build sample bundles, these groups, these sets of things. Um, for a particular conditions. So we might build peak body endorsed sample bundles for pre-diabetics or type 1 diabetics, type 2 diabetics, wow. so that here is a relatively standardised, approved set of things to give to somebody with that condition. won't mean that's what you have to give them, but it's come from qualified place that this is a good set of digital resources. So we're beginning to drive some standardization into the practice of recommending and prescribing apps love it that's a that's a good uh, journey to go on i can't wait to do the third interview with you in another 12 months <laughs> to see how things are going but tim i'll pop all the information about the digital health guide and everything else that you're doing in the show notes of this episode all the best and great to chat thanks pete really appreciate it take care thanks for listening to talking health tech my name is peter birch Go check out the website, contribute to the forum, listen to other episodes and get in touch with feedback about the show because collaboration starts with a conversation. Speak to you next time.